And this entire time, Stuart, they, there had been, I can't tell you how many attempts for someone to buy this. If you were a deal maker or a broker east to west coast, you had heard about this place and every every charlatan, every mushroom farmer, everyone you can possibly think of that that thought they could write a check for this had been here kicking the tires. And I'd always tell them, listen, the, the road to Tamarack is littered with broken hearts. And so, you know, everybody's a hero till they can write a check. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, looking at one of the many, many great ski areas in the state of Idaho today. First, you know what I need you to do. Subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. This is really key to getting the most out of the storm. Each podcast has an accompanying article that includes trail maps, master plan documents, and all kinds of other assets that provide valuable context for the interview. That comes straight to your inbox via the newsletter. The podcast is also just a small part of the storm, and I am constantly delivering articles breaking down the world of lift served skiing. The only way to get all of that is to subscribe. Again, it's free. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Now, let's talk about my partners. First up, Spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, the risk of injury is unavoidable. Meaning, if we send it too hard, we are just one crash away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention less time spent on the slopes. That's why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, and more to offer injury insurance with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered on the mountain. If your guests get hurt, Spot can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, skiers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back in their skis and on the mountain as soon as possible. Visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and provide your skiers with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities. A win-win for your resort and your guests. Skiers, make sure your mountain has Spot so you can shred with peace of mind this season. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And, of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Issue 196 dropped on my doorstep last month, and it is just incredible. Photo galleries, exploring the Cascades, powder skiing, and my home, New York City. Essays on snowboarding as zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. There's even a little crash course on the mysterious coyote and, of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man, at Isaac underscore Gardner on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Storm Ski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogi. Thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. End tweet. 
don't miss the next one. Subscribe now. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions over at mountaingazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of The Storm. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 73, Scott Turlington, President of Tamarack Resort, Idaho. To Idaho. Idaho is such a tremendous ski state. Tons of pow, big, big mountains, and very little of the corporate consolidation that's rolled up ski areas across the rest of the Mountain West. One of the most interesting of these is Tamarack, one of the newest ski areas in the United States and, until recently, one of its most dysfunctional. But Tamarack is finally under stable ownership, and it's working on an enormous master plan that would more than double its size. We're going to hear all about it today. Let's go. My guest today is the president of Tamarack Resort, Idaho. Tamarack has 50 runs on a 2,800-foot vertical drop, served by seven chairlifts, including three high-speed quads. The ski area receives more than 300 inches of average annual snowfall. Opened in 2004, Tamarack is one of the newest ski resorts in the United States. He helped found the resort and recently returned to lead the mountain in its ongoing expansion efforts. Scott Turlington is my guest. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you, Stuart. Glad to be here. Um, Thanks for having me. So, Scott, you've had a really interesting career. You've worked at all levels of government. Talk a little bit about that experience and how that led you into the ski industry. Sure. Um, You know, I got my first start uh, really back in graduate school, uh, finishing my graduate degree. Um, About halfway through that, I had an opportunity to join um, the staff of the United States Senator to get involved in really the policy side of it, um, environmental policy. Um, I have a master's or was getting my master's at the time in in, um, public and environmental policy and administration. So it was a good fit for me. Um, I discovered quickly that my passion and interests really lied in problem solving and policy making versus the politics of everything. Uh, and in fact, I, I don't like politics, to be honest with you. It's, uh, I find it frustrating, but I, I love policy and I love solutions and, and finding out how you know, uh, problems can be fixed. That ultimately led me back from the U.S. Senate uh, back to the governor's office in Boise, um, where I took a role as a policy advisor um, for the governor at that point, um, which is really kind of how I uh, ended up here because this project back in that period was called West Rock, and it was uh, being proposed to be built on state land. And so we had some interesting discussions, uh, myself and the governor at the time, about you know this new paradigm or maybe a paradigm shift from skiing and recreation on federal land to skiing and recreation on, on state-owned land. So obviously a lot of private resorts, but at the time, and this was 2000, 2001, I don't think that there were very many, um, if any, uh, resorts that had been permitted on state land. So we felt like it was a a unique solution um, and we were willing to explore it. And uh, so that's kind of a little bit of of the the background there. So you were president at Tamarack's founding in 2004. You left in 2008. And then you came back in April 2020. So why did you leave and what drew you back to Tamarack? Um, So, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, I left uh, to start uh, consulting uh, practice, uh, private practice with a former colleague of mine. And that was a pretty difficult period. I mean, 
lots of things going on with the economy. Everyone will remember what was happening. And I could see that Tamarack was not certainly going to be immune from any of that. You know, one of the differences, though, is that I never I guess I sort of never really left Tamarack, um, even as a as a out in the private sector. I continued to work with the resort on a number of different um, occasions, including um, I've been retained by the receiver that came in um, and, and was an advisor to the receiver. Um, I was an advisor to our lenders back then, the Credit Suisse Syndicate at the time. Um, even went through a period where I'd been proposed to the courts by some homeowners to be the receiver at Tamarack. And so it was really kind of an interesting few years as this place um, you know, went through its, its different gyrations of, of what was going to happen. Ultimately, it did go through a foreclosure process. And, uh, and I continued to stay involved once the homeowners were able to secure the property and operate it. I helped them on a few occasions. So, you know, I always sort of had my finger on the pulse here. You know, it's, I lived in Boise. It's 90 miles away. And I kind of had a good background. So um, that's really, for me, just always staying involved, even up in, until 2018, when I was brought on board by the new ownership group um, to help them through the acquisition. Um, and over those years, you know, my family still continued to come up and to ski and to, and to water ski and to, you know, recreate here because it's just such an amazing, amazing place and an amazing area. There's so many layers to that, Scott, and, and there's so many, there's so much involved in just opening a business and getting it open. And, and Tamarack in particular has had a very complex uh, and, and nearly tragic history. And we'll get into that a little bit, but I, how much does your experience having worked in government in state, local and federal governments, how crucial is that to you being able to navigate all of the permitting and contractors and environmental laws and interest groups and all these things associated with running a ski resort? Uh, you know, it's, it is, it's been critical. I think anyone um, that has to deal with the various aspects of external relationships, internal you know, uh, groups. I mean, there's, it, it's, it runs the gamut for me. Um, you know, my experience is mostly informed by my willingness to, to compromise, right. To understand, you know, where the lines are, where the limits are, um, and dealing with, uh, federal government, especially now that we're pursuing the federal, uh, a federal permit, you know, it's, it's taken me back to the origins of my roots in, in the U S Senate, but, but unless, I, I strongly believe that unless there's a willingness to compromise and to to work with parties, I mean, I, I think I think success is is just more abstract than, than a reality. And so, uh, you know, I, I've learned that throughout my career, um, you know, and you don't always win, but you you lose a lot less, I guess, is a good way to put it. And no wonder you don't like politics, Scott. It's uh, it's gotten to be too much of an absolutist game. It sounds like it seems like. It really has. And I got to tell you, for a lot of years as a, as a lobbyist, you know, it, it, I saw this change, you know, not only here in Idaho, to be honest, but across the country where it, where it's a, it's an all or nothing. And, and I got to tell you, you know, it's it's a little disheartening. And I even tracing it back, I think you can, for me, at least see some of the origins of that going back to Newt Gingrich and his contract with America and, and how he really started to put. I think his members of Congress, you know, back home in their districts every weekend instead of staying in D.C. and, and working and having, you know, uh, you know, outside of the office discussions and, and friendships occur. And so, you know, there, there's always a point in time where something started to go differently. And I think with our, our political system, um, 
everyone's probably got different ideas of when that is. But for me, um, I can I can see that is at least one of them. And so it's you've got to find really the underbelly of that system to uh, to understand who are the people and where do they you know exist that want to also be successful and help things um, get accomplished and help you get get accomplished what you need. So so it's a little bit of an art form, I guess, but it can be done. And similar to that, just opening a ski resort in modern America is no small feat. And it takes a lot of political maneuvering. It takes a lot of uh, local maneuvering. It takes a lot of talking to, to special interests. It seems like, and I want to just talk about this for a moment. It seems like you found an interesting different model, which is to use state land rather than federal land, which is where most uh, large Western ski resorts are built. So one of the dynamics that we're seeing here, Scott, is is as the Epic and Icon Passes drive more people to fewer mountains, you're getting really extreme crowding. And at the same time, you have this population redistribution, which is putting a lot of people in places like Salt Lake City and the Pacific Northwest, that I-5 corridor, where there weren't that many people two, three decades ago even. So it's like it's almost as though we're running out of mountains and the capacity is not there to feed the demand. Do you think that what you managed to accomplish with Tamarack, which is to look at a different model, open a resort on state land, is this a possible template that we could look to in the future to perhaps bring more resorts online in the United States where really we haven't materially brought a large resort online or very few of them in the past couple of decades? I really do. I think that, you know, all states have an opportunity to examine really their portfolio of lands, you know, rec lands that are available to see what they can offer. Um, A lot of times it's uh, the impetus of that is typically someone requesting use of that land. And that was the case here. Um, But what's what's different here at Tamarack is in the original, you know, if you go back to the to the 80s, the mid 80s, the, uh, the, the group that was trying to get the permit, which incidentally, the, the, the original group um, was called Valbois. They did get a special use permit. Um, they, they received it from the Forest Service and it's on the land that's directly, um, you know, contiguous to our state lease today. They ran into a bunch of other bus saws, you know, in that process, which ultimately led to, you know, to the, to the failure there. Um, but you know, there, there was, you know, there was land at the base, right? You had this really, really unique amenity here where you've got a mountain, you've got a meadow and you're on the footsteps of a lake. And so you've got this mountain meadow lake trifecta, which makes this so unique. And I, and I believe that that is why Tamarack and this facility, this location has always been sought after, you know, by some, by different groups, because they see the inherent value here, the intrinsic value of what's here from a, from purely a recreational standpoint, because it's just so unique with the mountain, the meadow with the golf course and the, and the, the lakeside marina. So yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, but I, I do feel that's a, that's a paradigm that, that lends itself to, you know, more exploration by, you know, state governments, uh, you know, to the extent counties and some municipalities have that opportunity because I think you'll be surprised at what you can find out there. And there is a decent model in place with the federal side. It's not like it's the, the worst model in the world. It's certainly got its its fair share of, of problems, but you know there is a template already out there. So you mentioned going back to the early 1980s, that was when the vision for Tamarack was first articulated publicly. And, and as you said, they ran into a number of obstacles, uh, but you did get it open in 2004, 
who was the developer that was finally able to push this and actualize Tamarack and how were they able to do it? Yeah. Um, so the key to their success, and it started really in 1999, that um, I'm going to call it that third development group. Um, so I was in the governor's office at that period of time, 99, 2000, 2001. And what this group did is they, they made a pivot, right? I, effectively, I'm going to say they called an audible from the line and said, you know what? Instead of the same 2,000 or 2,800 acres that the original group tried to get permitted on and ran into all the issues, if you look just a little bit to the right, there's 2,000 acres of state of Idaho land. Let's explore that and see what happens there. So they did their initial feasibility on just the terrain, and it was extremely comparable to, to the federal land. And um, then one day, you know, they knocked on my door at the governor's office and said, hey, we have an idea. Um, and that original group, I think, really changed the history because they now shifted an opportunity to the state. Um, and again, you know, that that land that's immediately south of that uh, contiguous is that, that original parcel. And I think that was really sort of I'd call the switch in time that saved Tamarack um, because it was a different way of looking at you had fresh eyes at the state level um, and you had, you know, a different a different uh, set of developers. Um, with commitments and uh, certainly wasn't easy by any stretch. And as we found out in 0809, you know, they were, um, you know, no, no different than any other big development or resort. These, these resorts are so capital intensive. It's just insane. I can tell you that as of today, you know, including the original developer that got it started in, in the 2000s, you know, close to $500 million in infrastructure oh alone, just infrastructure. I'm not talking... Wow. I mean, it's just it's just mind boggling what it takes. And when you're in a remote remote area, right, it costs money to pull power and water and to build sewer plants and to build water treatment facilities. Right. I mean, it's not cheap. So that's a, that's a big part of the issue. So nonetheless, despite all those obstacles, you got it done. The resort came online in 2004. It was the first big U.S. ski resort to come online, probably since Beaver Creek in 1980. Just take us back to that time, Scott. What was the energy like? when you finally opened the doors of Tamarack and you had a new ski resort in Idaho. Yeah, sure. I, I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I, so I, uh, I guess to finish my story on my sort of migration out, I left the governor's office. Um, I moved to the governor's office in, in 2000, 2001-ish, 2000. And then I uh, the, left in 2004, May, April of 04, uh, and came to Tamarack. That was prior to its opening. It opened in December. And, uh, you know, I obviously had spent enough time understanding, you know, the, the project and had a good sense for it. And, you know, my options in terms of where I had been in the governor's office, I was exploring a different path. Anyhow, that was either heading back to D.C. to do some work in the administration um, within their uh, one of their policy groups or, you know, I had a few options here in Idaho, but I really felt connected to this project here. I, I love the vision um, and what it had to offer. And again, I. I grew, I grew up in North Carolina, so uh, between there and Atlanta, not a lot of ski areas where I grew right. up. In fact, I, I didn't ski until I got married. My wife was from Idaho, and um, the first place I ever skied is a little <laughs> ski area outside of Burley, Idaho, called Pomerel. Nice. Um, and uh, it was it's, it's still operating day. It's, it was awesome. And then there I went to Pebble, which is over outside of Pocatello. And then, uh, you know, so I had some understanding, but it was really um, the opportunity to to see that happen and to see really where this could go. Opening this place, I remember vividly, we were literally laying 
carpet tile in our main base area at three in the morning on December 15th with the county building inspector there, you know, waiting to sign off on the on the occupancy, the certificate of occupancy so we could open at 9 a.m. the next morning. Amazing. And it was all hands on deck from, you know, everyone that was in our Boise office, the marketing team, the HR team, you know, the mountain ops team. I mean, it was it was one of the most exciting times of, of my career because it was just so energetic. And uh, it's like, I don't know, close to four. We finally got it done and the uh, building inspector signed off on our CO. Um, there, there may have been a few, uh, a few corks popped that, that, uh, <laughs> those early, early hours, but yeah. It, and from there it was, it was really kind of a blur. It was so exciting. So you finally get it open. You have a good couple of years, but then things, the recession hits, I'd, I'd imagine that, uh, was what roughed the place up. And, and as you said, you had all that capital that you just put in, but uh, court appointed receiver closed the mountain. Just take us through this. How did Tamarack get from that champagne popping opening to being shut down by the court appointed receiver in just five years? <laughs> uh, that was not as circuitous, right? That was a little more direct. It was really interesting. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, you know, the economy obviously was a big factor. What was happening with um, you know, the housing market? Um, obviously, Tamarack is, a, is also a development. Um, I think in addition to being an operating ski area, a recreation area, we, we have real estate. Um, at the time, Tamarack was you know, almost solely dependent on its real estate sales as we got launched. Obviously, our, our ownership group had been investing a lot into it. But as that market started to soften, the housing market, housing market started to soften. Um, we had a $250 million credit loan or credit facility loan in place. And so, you know, it was, uh, it wasn't hard to see. Um, I think it was 2008 was when our first default, uh, I, I already left, but I had Tamarack as a client, but in 08, February of 08, we defaulted on our first interest only payment. So we were a part of that same sort of, I guess, family of loans, if you will, that Credit Suisse had originated that, uh, the Yellowstone club was a part of that, um, Turtle Bay, Promontory, Lake Las Vegas. So, you know, th that was that period of time. And, uh, you know, economy slowed down, came to a grinding halt almost, especially on the real estate side. And that that triggered a default, you know, on our credit facility, um, which led into a whole series of legal maneuvers, which ultimately ended up with uh, Credit Suisse uh, being able to arrest back control um, of the resort through its loan documents. And then they hired a receiver out of uh, Southern California, which um, which I was uh, immediately hired by to help navigate this. I was already out um, in the private sector. And <clears throat> I will tell you, having gone through that process, uh, what that receiver did um, was was uh, it was just it was wrong. Right. He did not seek the court's input on that. He didn't seek the lenders input on that. No one. Um, I think they literally woke up one day and said, all right, we've gotten our fee out of this. Uh, it doesn't look promising, and they shut it down. Um, and they they had that that uh, that ability within their within their uh, agreement to do so, but the courts were were very displeased. And uh, it was I want to say it was February of '09, um, early February, and uh, that was the first and only time the place has been 100% shuttered, and it remained for the rest of the season and throughout the summer. And then as the summer sort of started to wind down, you had a group of homeowners um, and you had also the Credit Suisse itself who had to protect its asset 
um, that stepped up and said, all right, we're going to put some money in. We've got to preserve the asset because a lot of money was at stake, a lot of, and uh, they started making those investments and going forward, Tamarack in the following winter was able to get opened on a, you know, part-time basis, you know, two or three days a week, four days a week. And that persisted through 15. And in 2015, you had a full group of homeowners stand up that created a separate entity to really fund the operations. Um, on a three to five day a week uh, scenario. And this entire time, Stuart, they, there had been, I can't tell you how many attempts for someone to buy this. If you were, if you were a, uh, you know, a, a deal maker or a broker east to west coast, you had heard about this place and every, every charlatan, every mushroom farmer, everyone you can possibly think of that, that thought they could write a check for this had been here kicking the tires. Um, and it was, uh, I, I had this saying that, and because they would typically somehow they would end up in my office, you know, in Boise, people that wanted to to do this. And I'd always tell them, listen, the, the road to Tamarack is littered with broken hearts. And so, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's a hero till they can write a check. And it just it never worked out until 2018 when the new group emerged, Imperium, uh, MMG and Imperium. And and uh, they were, you know, they had the vision and the understanding. So that was a difficult kind of decade, if you will, um, that from really 08, 09 through 2018. I call it the decade of disaster, but Tamarack in and of itself, you know, it, it persisted. The Tam fam that's, you know, still popular here, you know, they, they came together. There was this pretty amazing culture of, you know, everyone hung out with everyone and listen, I mean, you're talking a you know, 10, 20, 30,000 skier visits in a season, but you know, they were making it work. It was, it was, it was getting there. Wow. There's, there's so much in there. Uh, Scott, and I, I want to go back to what you said about the receiver and that being the wrong decision because we had a similar situation out here in the Northeast, and I'm sure you followed this, where there was an EB-5 visa scandal and Jay Peak and Burke fell under the authority of a court-appointed receiver. And everyone was pretty scared that they were going to follow Tamarack and close those resorts down. And that would have been just devastating, not just for the resorts, but for all of Northeast skiing. Those are especially JP, very important mountains. They didn't. The receiver kept them open and they've been operating year after year. They don't have, you know, obviously the big capital budgets to put in new lifts or anything, but they have two very capable managers and they're they're making it work. When you look back at Tamarack and what the receiver did, how much more difficult did that make it to bring that place back online when ultimately you had that group of homeowners that that maneuvered to make that work? It, it almost made it insurmountable, right? I, I, and, I, and I think even for, you know, to the extent that there's some sympathy to sort of be shared with, you know, Credit Suisse, you know, the, the big trillion dollar industry bank. But listen, they, they, were, they were willing and prepared and they had been pouring a lot of money into it to preserve the asset. But to, to do what happened here, what this receiver did, and again, I was on that team, had no knowledge of it. In fact, when I, I got a call from the uh, VP of operations up here going, hey, we just left a meeting and they're shutting us down. I'm like, you're kidding. And so, it, 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 right, it was, it was literally the death nail at that, at that moment because now you've gone from a distressed asset to a shuttered asset. And I use asset, and again, you know, asset not being the optimal word here for, you know, when you think about recreation, but really this, this was a, you know, this was an asset and it, it was almost insurmountable. And it also signaled a different type of potential investor. It, it, it really signaled that there's investors out there who can come in and for, you know, pennies on the dollar or next to nothing, 
pick up something. And the problem that presented is, listen, anyone could have bought Tamarack for a good deal, but but do you have the capital or the the wherewithal to finish this project? And that right. was the distinguishing point that that you know either people weren't committed to, didn't understand. And so I think when that happened, I mean, it literally was it, it was the death blow. I mean, there's just no way around it. So they were able to reopen it, but things continued to get worse before they got better. In 2012, Bank of America repossessed the Wildwood Express. This is a serious lift, 1,645 vertical feet. I'm not sure about the length, but but that's a that's a big piece of machinery. They moved that down to Bryan Head, Utah. Um, as someone who helped found the resort, Scott, how painful was it for you to see that thing get stripped out? Well, um, brutal. I mean, just brutal, right? It. It, w- it was interesting because at that point, the homeowners had, you know, their own legal counsel and they were doing everything they could. And they did a good job for, I don't know, about six or eight months on slowing that down with the hopes of there's going to be a solution to this whole problem. If we could just, you know, stave off the, the, the lift repo, we'll find the solution. But ultimately, you know, Bank of America, you know, it's a bank with a C. Um, they prevailed and uh, they flew it out. I mean, it, it actually... It actually left the mountain a little faster than it went in, to be honest with you. And it was, it was a, it was, it was tough. It was hard to watch that, and uh, you know, it, it felt you know very dismal. And uh, there was, it was bleak. Not, not a lot of hope at that point. The story has a, a happy ending, though, and and it's probably a testament to the resilience of the folks who really care about this place. The Wildwood Express is back. Not the same one, obviously. That one's down in Utah, but but you installed a new Wildwood Express in 2019. So. Talk about that lift and, and how you were able to bring that thing back to the mountain. It's back and uh, it sits in exactly the same on the exact same footings as the original lift. In fact, when they flew the other lift out, the old lift, right, they put the the nuts back on the bolts, you know, covered them up and protected mm-hmm. them. And, you know, it's That's nice. Yeah, it's uh, so it came back in uh, almost double the cost of the original one. So prices Ooh. have gone up, and you know, last few years it's not cheaper. But it, it, so I guess there's really kind of a psychological, you know, point to investing, you know, over $5 million kind of on day one of acquisition into a lift because it, it sends the message that, hey, we're, you know, we, we as this ownership group, we are for real. Um, we're going to put the capital in that is required to get Tamrac turned around. Uh, and that was really the first, uh, that was the first, uh, I guess, you know, puff of white smoke that we sent up. And it's phenomenal. That pod, that wildwood pod, it is, it is an amazing area. And so to be able to give our, our guests and our homeowners that opportunity to get back out there, you know, with the, with the, you know, the, the lift, it's uh, it speaks volumes to the commitment that, that we have as an ownership group and to what the future holds. So you have a new ownership group in place. You have your lift back. Uh, you have some momentum going here. How is the new ownership group different? And what gives you the confidence that this time is different? Uh, you mentioned the real estate. Have, have you de-emphasized real estate, for example, as key part of the resort? Just take us through this. How, how is this time going to be different from Tamarack? And how are you going to keep the place alive and thriving for the decades to come? Sure. Uh, well, first on real estate, I would say that it's, 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 it's probably more important now than ever, given the market that we're in. I think the difference is, and, and really my mandate is, the operations has to stand on its own, right? So there's a big difference. If the real estate market starts to soften, which we've not seen that, it's gone the opposite direction with COVID, 
then, then operations has to has to stand on its own and be profitable. And so that's really where, you know, you get this turnaround operation that we're doing to get operations to to, to stand alone. And so that's the that's the big difference. Uh, the other big difference with our ownership group is their level of commitment. You know, they've got background and experience um, in the commercial real estate side of the resort industry. Uh, it's a it's a, a small family office out of Miami. Uh, it, they're very close, very tight knit, uh, very committed, and and so you know part of this difference is it's you know they're they're writing checks from their own bank account, right? It's not it's not investor funds, it's not mutual funds, it's not right. It is it is their money, and so every every dollar matters to them. And anyone who's ever invested in a venture. With your own money, like you, that that will make sense, and I and I think that this is no different here, in terms of what their commitment is uh, to ensuring that there is ultimate long term success here. And they're and and it's they're very patient. That's the other issue. Most institutional money is not patient. There needs to be immediate ROIs. There needs to be you know all these checkpoints. And and it's not to say that I don't have those. We don't have those here because we certainly do. But there's a there's a different level of patience that comes along with the investment. Well, they certainly have so far shown a big level of commitment, uh, in particular with the updated master plan that Tamarack filed with the U.S. Forest Service last year. So I have some specific questions that I want to go through here, but just lay this out for us in broad terms, Scott. What is Tamarack's master plan and how is this going to transform the resort? Sure. So our, our master plan, and, there, and again, like everything else here, it has its origins, you know, back from a couple of decades ago. <laughs> Um, it, it is the we're proposing an expansion onto federal land. Uh, we're currently on state land, and so that'll be unique in and of itself. But our expansion proposal that's been submitted uh, to the Forest Service would, and it's we've we've made some changes and some some modifications recently. It, it would effectively acquire uh, under special use permit about 2,100 additional acres. Um, about 1,700 acres, 1,750 acres on the south end and about 350 or so acres on the north. And within that expansion for both summer and winter uh, recreation, uh, we're proposing um, five new aerial lifts at this point, one being um, a gondola, uh, you know, base to summit, uh, and then two fixed grip uh, triples and then uh, two detachable quads. And so we're, we're trying to, again, go back to the original vision here and looking at that, that land of the south um, with, the, with the, what's called Lone Tree Peak, which would be our, our new summit or secondary summit, a little bit, a couple of hundred feet higher than our existing summit. Um, and there was a reason why that land was initially identified. And it's because of just the, the terrain uh, aspects, the different um, opportunities it offers for, your, for different levels of skiers. And for us, there's a, a real purpose and need just because of the demand that, that we've seen. And I know everyone is seeing this. You mentioned the, some of the other resorts and, and how they're doing. But, you know, we, we have to expand, right? Our, our comfortable carrying capacity today is around 3,000 um, skiers. And, you know, this will allow us to, over time, you know, over a 10 to 15 year period, you know, get that number up to, you know, six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 wow. on a CCC. Um, but again, it's not an overnight process. It's, it's, it's a, it's a period of time, but for us, it represents really the phasing, um, the intelligent phasing, if you will, uh, of, of an, an extremely intensive, intensive capital project. And when you can phase in properly and the demands there, then, 
then then you don't have to look back one day doing a post-mortem going, gee, how do we go out of business? You know, <laughs> you, you can you can do really what I call a pre-mortem and plan effectively and do it the right way. And so that's what we're really focused on is trying to do it the right way and, and not uh, bite off more than we can chew at this point. So there's always a lot of back and forth on these forest service proposals. So where are you at in this process and what's your most optimistic timeline for when you could start digging up dirt? Yeah, it is. A, there is a lot of back and forth. Uh, we've had, you know, a great. Um, so we've, we've been working this now. I, actually, I uh, prior to coming on as president. Um, so when I came on board in, in 2018 as a as a consultant to to MMG and to helping them navigate the acquisition, um, I floated this idea. And, and this, this was something that we started when I was here in 07, 06, 07. And, but at that point, we were proposing a land exchange, a three-way land exchange between the Forest Service, the state of Idaho, uh, and us. And that would have given the state of Idaho all of the surrounding land. And in exchange, the Forest Service would have picked up some pretty uh, valuable parcels in different wilderness areas that the state owned. And then Tamarack would be the beneficiary of that lease by expanding it. So when I first approached the Forest Service and said, you know, is there any interest in looking at this again? It's been a few years. They said, eh, maybe not, but we might be interested in a special use permit. We want to maintain ownership there. So that really started the process. Where we are today, um, we're, 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 what I believe is we're hopefully on the eve of starting NEPA. Um, and, you know, once that NEPA process starts, um, that really is when the clock starts on the timeline to get this finished. Um, I think most, well, um, most people know this, but uh, it, it is... There is an, uh, an executive order that that the uh, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture and Interior, respectively, the Forest Service and BLM, they're operating under uh, under an executive order from the previous administration to get uh, you know EISs that fall underneath but done you know by within 12 months, 12 months or sooner. And so we're most likely heading headed towards an EIS on our expansion or on our permit, which again you know assuming that. Everything goes to plan, uh, which it always does, right? 12 months <laughs> from the time we start NEPA, uh, we should be able to wrap up our, our process. And then it'll, you know, whatever appeals or whatever process happens after that. So realistically, you know, I kind of look at that 18-month window from, from when we start NEPA. Um, hopeful that we'll start NEPA. I'm still in Q1 of this year. And uh you know, uh, I've got some pretty strong indicators that we will, but until we do, right, well, we haven't. So that's my sort of vision on this, you know, about 18 months or so uh, until our permit is, is, is complete. And then we'll be able to start into our phase one, which would be, you know, that um, really based summit, you know, gondola um, and the initial runs that we're going to cut in and some of the facilities that we'll have over there, including some expanded snowmaking um, capabilities in that terrain. Um, so you know, call it 18 to 24 months is when I hope we can be um, uh, started and, and really moving on, on the, you know, shovel ready projects. Yeah, this looks like a massive piece of terrain, Scott. And, and for anyone listening, this, this is the part of the, of the podcast where you want to go and pull out your trail map or your, or, or the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com, because there's a lot of visuals that I'm going to refer to. So it looks from my seat, Scott, like this will essentially when you're done double if not more the size of the ski area just how much additional terrain are we talking about here 
Sure. Well, I like to I like to couch this in terms of this is the smallest possible expansion that anyone could imagine, because if it's smaller, there's less people that oppose it, it seems like. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, in reality, it's um, it's going to add it's going to double it's going to double our size. And again, um, this is not what we originally proposed, but through the course of the last year and my you know different meetings with stakeholders outside of the government, um, you know, we've reached some uh, some agreement and some compromise with different groups. And so this revised plan, and, and this is all on our website now, the new boundary permit actually is a bit smaller than what we had initially proposed, um, but it still gets us, uh, you know, what we are hoping to achieve. And so it's roughly 2,100 acres would be our, our expansion area. Um, our current uh, lease with the state of Idaho <clears throat> sits on uh, just under, so about 2,043 acres to be exact. So this is going to push us a little bit large. This will, this will double our our terrain um, and our and our capacity, um, and uh, you know, I, again, there's there's a need for it. We have the demand, um, and we have a, a plan in place that will that will go about this in a in a, in a meaningful manner. But yeah, this will definitely um, take us to that next level. And then, in addition to just the mountain, we have the base facilities to support that. We'll have the parking to support that. We'll have the infrastructure to support that. So you're not getting a half-baked plan to grow this mountain without all the supporting facilities and infrastructure that will be required. Yeah, this is uh, that's a lot of terrain, and there's a lot of really interesting pods of terrain within that that I think will each serve their own distinct purpose. So let's break these down. And I want to start with the gondola. So it's going to have a mid-station and then go all the way to the Lone Tree Summit. What's the vertical rise going to be on that? So the vertical to get up to Lone Tree to the summits uh, right around 2,900. Um, and then wow. I think we're projecting and I guess, I don't know how they come up with this, but basically a 12 minute ride, right? So it takes about 12 minutes to get from the base to the summit on, on the, on the, the new lift. So, uh, and it's, and I, can, I can tell you from just a, a you know, it's, I think it's just about two and a half miles in terms of straight line. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a ways up. Um, and I think that experience is important, um, to keep people out of the weather. It'll be a year round. Uh, service for summer and winter. And I think that will really be kind of the crown jewel. It'll come out of, it'll start here in the village at the base of Tamarack in our village. So I think that will be, provide that unique experience to get, to get everyone up to the, to Lone Tree, which man, that's a whole different world up there. It's just beautiful. The mid station, how high is that going to be? So I, I, I don't have that exact number. I want to say uh, it's 12, 1300 feet um, vertical up from, from it's, it's a little more than half, uh, quite a bit more than half. So it's, uh, not quite midway as, as the name infers, but, but I think in that 1300 feet vert, uh, sort of scenario. And why did you choose that place for it? Uh, well, terrain being one, it's, it's a, it's a logical area. It also gives us the opportunity, you know, to, uh, either embark, disembark, put folks on the other lift net, uh, the other lifts that are programmed in, um, we've got really kind of an interesting way of keeping people on the mountain, which I guess is, I mean, every mountain does this. So it's not like we're, you know, blazing any ground here, but, but just with how our terrain falls in the different fall lines, um, it's, it, it was the right spot to put it, to tie into these other lifts. Um, and also to keep people, you know, in circulation on the mountain. Yeah. It looks like only blue and black runs come off the summit. So this will be a good place for those beginner or novice skiers to disembark. Correct. Yep. That's exactly right. And, and I would also note too, that we're proposing to, to expand some, some lifts on, 
you know, on the state land, which will will help tie into that as well. But that that initial pod, if you will, that phase one, which is, you know, the gondola and the different areas through there, that's, you know, that's where we're going to kind of our first five year plan once we get that going to get that enhanced and built out. Have you given any thought to the type of machine you want there? Eight passenger gondola, ten passenger gondola. Have you looked, or or, or are we not there yet? Uh, we're we're not quite there yet. We're certainly exploring that. Looking at you know, obviously, cost is always you know the big issues, especially when you're a fiercely independent resort like we are. We're, we don't have a, you know, it's just we have a different process for evaluating this, but. It seems like that the numbers I'm seeing today just for this lift coming in between, you know, 20, 25 million, maybe a, a, a skosh more, right? That's a big and significant investment for, you know, for a, an aerial. So we haven't landed on which, you know, what we're going to do exactly, but that's kind of where we've started. All right, let's start this. Uh, as you said, this branches off, this gondola branches off into all kinds of different terrain pods. So let's start to the one that's lookers right that heads up toward your existing Tamarack Summit. And this looks, to, it goes to the top of Grouse Bowl or, or South Bowl. I've seen it called both things. Uh, this looks like it serves advanced terrain. So just talk about that pod and why it made sense to put another lift in there rather than just serving that off the Tamarack Summit and also what that terrain will bring to the mountain. Sure. Uh, so, you know, that one's very, they're all very deliberate, but this one, especially, you know, one of the, uh, continual, you know, uh, feedback comments or, you know, comments we get back from our guests is we we're a little short on some of the advanced terrain. And so, um, obviously we, we know that, and, and this is one way to remedy that, right. This adds some additional, um, advanced terrain, and it's going to be to the South of our state lease, but it ties in nicely to that state lease area. Then we can start connecting those runs over um, over the boundary if you will and and so for us that really is a is a way to open up and to really significantly enhance how much of the uh, advanced terrain we're, we're going to be offering and that's also important because um, if you're looking at the most current version um, on the north piece uh, we i initially had a lift programmed on that north section that 400 or so acres yep. uh, i've removed that taken that out and that's going to stay hike to ski you know, that's the kind of the banana bowls, the half moon bowl. That is that is the, the kind of the upper echelons of the, you know, the, the really rugged stuff. And so by taking that lift out, making it hike to ski, we wanted to make sure that we had enough advanced terrain for people to feel comfortable on. So so I think that's why you're seeing that pod there, which is served by lift B um, or the uh, I think we call that the canoe, the canoe lift uh, to uh, to really open up more, uh, more advanced stuff. And what do you have in mind there? Is that going to be one of those high-speed quads? Yeah, that'll be a, that'll be a, a detachable. And then over skiers right coming down the gondola, you have two more lifts, two shorter lifts. Uh, one looks like it serves all blue terrain, and one looks like it serves all green terrain. And I got to tell you, I love these mid-mountain pods yeah. of, of contained um, beginner intermediate terrain, because I think it gives them that big mountain experience in a non-intimidating way. So just talk about those two pods down by Poison Creek sure. and how those will work with the gondola to move people around the mountain. Yeah. So those are both going to be uh, fixed grip triples. And you're right. It, it, it creates these unique pods. You know, we've learned a lot from our Wildwood area because Wildwood's kind of its own pod. And when, when guests can get out and experience sort of this isolation in these pods, and have the lift to keep them on there. I mean, it, it does make a big difference. It also helps disperse crowds. Um, not that we have, you know, uh, uncontrollable crowds today, but, you know, we'll be there. 
Um, putting them in pods is a, is, a, is a great way to control crowds, but especially in these two areas, these two pods, um, uh, we, we see there's additional green terrain, which is also um, one of the um, you know, continual uh, feedback uh, comments we get from guests is we need more green terrain. And we're actually going to remedy that on our current mountain next year. But the green and blue terrain and, and being able to access it from, from those lifts and the parking lots that are going to be in that south area of the, the, the private land, uh, it's going to make a huge difference um, just in the flow um, and just overall how people experience and what, you know, what, they, what they have the opportunities to go do. Yeah, I have to say this is a really intelligent design. I, I really just like the way it, it almost looks like 10 different ski areas in one. <laughs> and and you have these experiences sometimes where all the fast skiers and all the crazy skiers and all the new skiers all come together in these super highways and and crisscross each other and there's and there's cut throughs and and it looks like this really avoids all that. So just talk about that design process a little bit. Is this your team doing this? Did you hire this out? How did you bring it together? Because I really like the way that this is laid out. So it's a combination of both. We're uh, we're using a, an external group to help us, the SC group. But, you know, this design comes from from not only the, the years of experience that our that our team has on the ground, but also, you know, SE was here in the beginning. SE was our original land mountain planner. And so a lot of their institutional knowledge is still there. Um, and, and we've got, believe it, after all these years, we still have a few OGs here at Tamarack that were around <laughs> in the beginning. And, uh, and, and man, are they tough, right? I mean, they've survived yeah. all the nonsense we've been through. And, 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 and those folks know the mountain like the, like the back of their hands. It's insane. In fact, I had a crew out yesterday, you know, going to the lift terminal, skiing down. And, and one came in this morning before you and I started talking, Robbie, and he was just talking about how incredible, you know, this is going to be. And so it's creating this excitement again. But this is really kind of a collection, I think, of, of, uh, of all of our experiences here that have been here since the beginning. And then the capabilities of SE and their understanding of the mountain as well. Um, uh, having been here as long as we have. So, and this is very deliberate. Like you said, this is intended to, uh, I guess, keep folks in their own lane. And so if you're making a decision to get on the canoe, uh, canoe lift, right, you're making a decision to get into an area that if you don't know what you're getting into, you might not have the best experience. So instead of, let's take the guessing out of it, let's just tell you where you need to go. And I think that'll make a huge difference. Yeah. You also have a new South base area proposed as part of this which would have two little lifts coming out of it. One looks like sort of a, a feeder to the upper mountain, but also has some blues off it that's labeled as lift D on the document I'm looking at. Then you have a little teeny tiny lift C, which looks like it's meant to be a beginner lift, feeding some green terrain. So just talk about that whole area, Scott. And, and I'm, also, I'm also interested in the base area itself, whether that's just parking or if you're actually building some facilities there. Uh, yeah, so we will build some facilities there. That'll be kind of another sort of... Uh you know, a port, portal for us uh, on the south. There will be parking. There will be facilities. The, the facilities won't be as, you know, as robust as what we have in our current uh, uh, port, uh, base area here. But definitely this whole area, in addition to those facilities, will also be, um, you know, have a heavy emphasis on real estate. Um, you know, our real estate development in this area, you know, we've got about 10 years of real estate development left. So that's Roughly, you know, so we've we've sold and developed about 500 units of real estate since opening in 04. Um, and 150 of those have been since um, the beginning of 2019. And we've got about 1,500 units of real estate remaining um, in our master plan. 
And so we've obviously, depending on your absorption rate in the market, right, that can be, you know, five to 15 years. So somewhere in that, in that range. But, but as we initially go in to start putting in the, the base area um, and the facilities to serve the mountain, um, you know, we're looking at uh, parking, obviously, for, for guests and for the public um, and obviously facilities that will, you know, rentals and, and tickets and everything else. We'll have some centralized parking, um, a little uh, more, more sort of in the center of the resort. We'll either run shuttles or, or you know, lifts to, to get people back and forth. Um, but I am really pleased. And in fact, one of the initial assessments we did to determine if this is even feasible is can we get the, uh, the, the parking that we need to serve, you know, what this mountain can actually, you know, produce? And, and we answered that question in the affirmative, which was really the go forward. We knew we had the water on the mountain for snowmaking. We own the water, the water rights, right? And, and that's the big important one. And so then do you have parking space? And uh, we do. So that uh, those two lifts um, that are sort of in the, on the private land, lift C and lift D, um, you know, everything's designed to get you into the system, right? So lift C, um, if you're in that residential area or in the parking lot area, you can take that up and ultimately get down to lift D, take that up, and then you're on the mount in the system. And that's how we've laid this out um, so that it's uh, maybe a little more of a unique experience, I think. And I'm sure other mountains do this. I'm not super familiar with every mountain's master plan, but, you know, it just made a lot of sense to us to do it this way. And how much is that going to help just having two base areas? Because I think what we're seeing is a lot of road crowding and traffic when you get to these pinch points within the mountains. So how much is it going to be able to help just as you're bringing people onto the resort in the morning to just be able to have two different places for them to go? Yeah, it'll it'll be huge. I mean, that will that will change everything. You know, we we're, we've been very fortunate here for a couple of reasons. You know, our, our capacity is, is not bad today. Um, and in fact, on Chris, on the 31st of December that we just left was the, the busiest day in the history of Tamarack. And I will tell you our longest, our longest wait in our lift lines, uh, I think we were clocking them at around 10 or 11 minutes. Oh, wow. That's so, and so I, I, I put that out there for any of the listeners that are tired of lift lines that want to, you know, journey over to Tamarack, we can, uh, we'll hook you up. But what's even more interesting about that is as we start to put these pods in there and separate out, separate out, you know, these pinch points. I mean, it's going to make the experience even, even more of a, you know, what you would expect. Um, last season, uh, coming out of COVID, we we had lift lines that were a little different, but that's because we were following the guidance of the NSAA, and we weren't fully loading up chairs, and you know, you'd have one or two people in a chair, so our uphill capacity really diminished as a result of that. But if we're allowed to run our lifts at full uphill capacity or at eighty percent, our lift lines are extremely uh, desirable. So, and you've been able to do that this year. We have been able to do that this year, and it's made a huge difference. Again, our busiest day ever, and we were seeing you know ten, eleven minute uh, waits, which is pretty pretty nice. So let's go back to Overlook Rock here for a moment. That was uh, on previous master plans, as you mentioned. That was lift served skiing with actually cut trails. So will this be basically part of the resort that's managed by ski patrol or is there a gate and it's considered out of bounds? What's your thinking around what that overlooked terrain pod will be? So, yeah, that's going to, that's within our existing state lease um, in terms of overlook, but yeah, it will get you into some of the, the forest service land. Um, and that forest service area, all the hike to skiing, we're going to 
we're proposing to put it in our permit area, but just have it really undeveloped. Um, that way we can patrol it and we can, you know, manage it. Um, but the Overlook uh, Express is designed to also create um, a pod where when you are experiencing large crowds, getting people out of the mountain, mountain and keeping them on the mountain versus returning back to the base lifts um, really helps with the lines. And so Overlook will also open up some really, really nice blue terrain as well, in addition to access to that northern section of, that will be on Forest Service land. Um, we're expanding the Wildwood lift too, or extending the Wildwood lift, uh, which which is key. This is one of those things where I look back to my initial time here and I think, why didn't we think about that the first time? That's actually a no-brainer. But yeah, right. I can't remember why we made that terrible decision not to extend Wildwood uh, over that corner of the Forest Service land. But that will change how Wildwood skis as well in terms of your, your ingress and egress into that pod. So that's going to be a really, really nice function. That may be something that we decide to do in phase one of our expansion. Uh, we haven't completely ruled that out yet, but we're looking at, uh, looking at that a lot sooner. And once you get into that overlooked terrain, will you be able to ski out back down to the bottom of Wildwood? Um, yes, you, you'll be able to do that. Okay. And are you going to do avalanche control in there? We will. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. Great. All right. Let's talk about snowmaking. You, you do get quite a bit of snow, 300 inches a year, as I mentioned in the intro. Uh, but Tamarack does have some snowmaking and, and it looks like you want to put in more. So how much do you have now? And how do you want to pump up that system for the future? So we have roughly, you know, it varies between 75 and 100 acres now. And that's just primarily on our on our, on our showtime run, just so we can get open early in serenity. Uh, we're actually in the process of updating, um, upgrading our current infrastructure, replacing the, the pipe uh, with the new ductile, which has a longer lifespan. I mean, we're only 18 years into this since we installed it. And uh, most of the stuff, I don't know if it was junk or garbage when we installed it, but man, it's already got pinholes in it. It's falling apart. So Jeez. unfortunately, you know, that's just how it goes. But ductile is a way more, um, you know, uh, longevity wise, I think 40, 50 years, more expensive, but, but ease of installation. So with that, um, we do we do plan to expand some additional terrain for snowmaking in our existing lease area. But beyond that, I th uh, we're proposing roughly 200 or so more acres of snowmaking in our uh, expansion area. We could do more and we may change that later. Um, we've got the water to do more, so, we've, uh, so we're good there. But I think that, that that's designed really to provide um, early access uh, into the, to the upper parts of the mountain where we will historically always have snow. Because, um, you know, one of the, I call it an advantage. Some people may see it as a disadvantage, but one of our advantages is that, you know, our base is at 5,000 feet. So we're not in these, you know, sort of the high altitude Rockies that you see in other, other states. Um, our summits between, you know, 70, 700 and, and 8,000. So it's, uh, our snow is always good up top, but, you know, down low, we, uh, we certainly need some help early on. And that's what this expansion is designed to cover some of the lower uh, stuff to get us onto the mountain and into the system. Another big element of your long-term build-out is the village center area, which actually finally opened uh, in 2020. So talk about the importance of this development to creating a true resort experience and sense of place at Tamarack. And, and I, I guess just talk about why did it take so long to get it built and what, are your, what is your vision for it long-term? Sure. Well, the reason anything takes a long time is because it's cost, right? And so that right. was the same here. Um, 
when when we acquired the resort at the end of 2018, you know, first task was number one, get the Wildwood lift back in, um, get operations stabilized. Number two, get the village going. So within our current village, we've got six buildings. Three are 100% complete. Within those six buildings, we've got 129 condos. We've sold um, 85 or 90 of them. So we're, we're, we're you know, approaching the completion of that, and that's been great. Uh, we've got five restaurants that are currently open. Uh, one of them is not in the village. It's at Mid Mountain, the cantina. But, but being able to bring that sort of uh, look and feel into the village to have events there. We have, you know, every Tuesday night we have music and trivia. In the summertime, we have concerts on the, on the snow front, on our amphitheater. And it, it brings vibrancy and it brings life really to the heart of the resort in the village. And uh, that has made a, that, I mean, that's made all the difference in terms of people coming up here. And I guess if they, before they got here, if they wondered if this, if the stench of death was still around when they leave, they know that it's not because what they're seeing when they get here um, is not what they might've seen five or 10 years ago when they were here last. And so we really have uh, you know, a second chance to make a first impression and that's very rare. And so this this new first impression we're making um, has has gone off really well. And so that village being the core of all of this, we just opened up the brand new Tamarack Outfitters, which is a 7000 square foot retail facility for tickets, rentals, lessons, retail, all of it. And it's state of the art. It's it's among some of the nicest you'll find out there. And so it, it, it's a guest experience that people um, I don't think are expecting until they get here. So huge, huge difference in, in, in the uh, in what people have seen and versus what they're seeing now. And what's the ambition for that long term? How, how big do you imagine the village getting? Uh, so we're going to continue to expand. It'll be based on the demand in the market. So, you know, if any any lessons that we've learned from the original, you know, Tamarack 1.0, it's don't uh, don't don't uh, run faster than you can than you can walk or walk faster than you can run, whatever that saying is, don't get out of the tips of your skis. Let's use that one. <laughs> um, so we're going to continue. Uh, we've, we've already started on the final two buildings. Um, and so those are underway. We'll, we'll begin the, the residential sales of those condos here in the next you know, few weeks. Um, we're finishing out an event center. Um, we, uh, I just announced about two weeks ago, we're, we're opening the, uh, it's, it's the new, seven devils tap house so we had seven devils pub was at one of our founding you know restaurants and bar and so that's going to open this year in december um, in the village and then we're also currently uh, in discussions with a couple of different hotel brands and groups and uh, here in the next uh, two or three months we'll we'll make an announcement on a true hotel um, you know we've got lodging capabilities today it's all through the rental program privately owned residences will put their units in our rental pool and our rental program. And, and then we operate them as, as a hotel. Um, but to have a true, you know, standalone flag or a brand in will, will be a, a, another big step for us. And again, we're, we're in those discussions and we'll have an announcement there, you know, hopefully, uh, I don't know, late spring, early summer, if not sooner. So that will, that will continue to grow and elevate that village experience and really kind of start to having it feel like, you know, what, what a lot of people have already experienced at other um, mature resorts. So it sounds like you have a really good plan in place to start bringing folks, bringing skiers, guests into the resort and making it feel like a true destination. The issue that most resorts across the West are running into is employee housing. And so 
Tamarack actually has a pretty awesome plan around that as well. You recently announced a plan to build an employee housing complex that accommodate could accommodate up to 500 workers. So give us the high level overview of this development, Scott. Uh, where would it be? How long would it take to build? What kind of housing are we looking at? And, and why are you doing it? Uh, this will be a kick-ass facility, and I, I kid you not. I, I, I am more excited about this than anything else we're doing because wow. I know as an operator that, that you're only as good as your team. And the challenge that we have and everyone has, it's not just us, is recruiting, you know, recruiting that talent level, um, the, the seasonal uh, workforce that comes in. So uh, when I, uh, again, stepped in as in, in my current role, in, uh, in April of 2020, this was the first thing um, that we tackled in terms of if, if we don't solve this now, right, we're, we're going to continue to, uh, to, to bang, bang our heads on the wall. So we started putting together the plans. We're building all of our employee housing on site. We've dedicated the land for it. And uh, we're taking a very unique approach. We, uh, we have an architect out of Seattle who's kind of, you know, works all over the world. And they brought us this idea that when you hear it on the phone, you go, dude, like, what are you smoking? Like, seriously? <laughs> but when I saw the concept, I went, wow, like, how has this been overlooked? So I'm going to use this term one time and one time only. This will help everyone understand what we're talking about. These are Quonset huts, right? Okay. Go back to the 40s. These were these industrial Quonset huts that the military used and pioneered back east. But that's what we're talking about, except... Um, we're talking about, you know, the fit and finish inside of these being, you know, sort of extremely high level. And the reason we're going this direction, number one, cost, uh, they're efficient. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it's less, it's less of a cost, you know, almost to, to, to bring these in. They're, they're prefab to a certain degree, but we have the ability to configure these and build these out so that we can do one, two bedrooms, right? We can have two beds in a room, one bed in a room. We'll have gender neutral bathrooms. We'll have facilities, common area facilities, and they shed snow, right? So the maintenance on these is really, uh, really low. Nice. Um, and, and they patina over time because they're, they're steel. Um, and mm -hmm. so that, that will have a nice look and feel. But our initial one, we've already, we've already ordered it. We've got the site plan ready to go. I'll be getting building permits from the county uh, in the next couple of months. And that facility, or the first one, that's 12,000 square feet, so 6,000 down, 6,000 up. It will be online and ready to go when we hit uh, um, December 1st of 2022 for this next ski season. We'll be able to put 64 employees there, and we'll keep a little bit of our stuff off-site for now. But we're also going to build in, into that next few years as we expand out. Um, options for families. Um, you know, we see a lot of that. You need somewhere for, you know, a, a couple you know, partners to come in that might have a kid or a couple kids. So we're going to have some two and three bedroom units that are going nice. to be separate. Um, yeah. So listen, this is arguably the most important thing we're doing to create the most valuable experience that a guest could have. Because if you don't have the staff, um, you just, right, you're going to, you're going to suffer all the way around. And we've seen that. That's always been a problem, not just here, but everywhere. That, that sounds really awesome. Where is that site going to be? Are these ski in, ski out? Are they a little drive away? Just orient us to where they are. So it's, um, for anyone that happens to be looking or see our master plan, it's, it's on our site. It's just below our golf course. Um, so it's on our property. And uh, um, so it's, it's right off of what's called West Mountain Road. And we're calling this area Lakeview Village. Um, so within Lakeview Village, we'll have the employee housing. Um, and it's really centrally located. Um, at, the, at the center of the resort. 
um, right off of West Mountain Road. So we're also building this year um, a substation for the local fire department. It'll be housed there. And we've also, uh, we're, we're, we're opening up and we'll have open later this year in conjunction with a partner, a charter school, a public charter school in the same area. Oh, wow. And so that's going to be really kind of a core area for, you know, for housing, for schooling. Uh, the charter school had, you know, it's initially approved for 215 students and it is public. So any, anyone can go there. Um, so that's really exciting as well. But all that's happening, you know, sort of centrally located in the resort on our property. Um, and it's, uh, it's just below the seventh fairway, um, if you will, of the golf course. That is a really creative and interesting solution, Scott. The The narrative I've seen is that most attempts to build employee housing in the West get foiled by some combination of NIMBYs and special interests and governments and this and that. It sounds like what you're doing here is being able to dispense with all that by, by simply building the housing in, a, in, in what sounds like perhaps a, a more affordable way right on site and just saying, you know what, we're not going to deal with all that. We're just going to bring the employees where they need to be anyway. Yeah. Right. I mean, we, I mean, I guess I'm the, I'm, you have to control your own destiny and doing yeah. that within our footprint, right? No one can tell us what we can and can't do here. So we're going to do what's right here. And uh, you know, there, there, and there's a lot of support by the way, from our County, they obviously want it as well, right? Every, every employee we can keep here in our housing opens up, you know, housing outside yeah. And the other key thing is, is we get to control the price here. And so, um, you know, currently our employees only pay 500 bucks a month. Um, nice. And that's what we're building our model on for the future. Um, there are some things that inherently we know are going to be a cost center. And it, it, it depends on your values and, and, you know, as an owner and as an operator and to what you want to do. And, and again, some of this is driven by shareholders and other resorts. We have a little different model here. And so our, our model is to is to invest in those things that produce the greatest experience. Um, you know, we're always cost sensitive, but the greatest experience and benefits long term, really, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. So those are really cool. I'll, I'll look forward to seeing those. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit more. Get back on the mountain here. So you put in RFID this year. Uh, how do you like that? How's it working out? Uh, it's been great so far. We're using the access system and it's it's given us visibility into things that we have not previously had. Like, for example, I can see how many of our employees are skiing when they're supposed to be working. That's really cool, including <laughs> me. Right, right. Uh, but no, it's it's been it's been awesome. Um, it uh, you know technology, right? Really having a ubiquitous system for the resort industry. It, it's I don't think it's there yet. I can't find it. And we've got so many different business. Um, you know, business units here from our marina rentals to what will be golf to spa to, to, to uh, equipment rentals, retail, like there, there's not one system that serves everything. And so that's unfortunate. But what we have, uh, including food and beverage, like so what we have today um, is a massive improvement over where we were. And so we're really uh, we've been very pleased with how it's operating. And then, again, just the back end data we're able to collect and see. Uh, has been great. So I'm looking forward to continuing to utilize that technology and expand it, you know, as they get new, uh, you know, new, I guess, new products available for the industry. So technology really is important for this industry. And, you know, this, I don't know overall how big this industry is, 40, 50 billion annually, but, um, you know, Silicon Valley has never really stepped foot into this industry, which is too bad because there, there's a huge data play. There's a huge opportunity within this industry. I think some, some within this industry have figured that out. Um, 
And uh, I, I certainly realize that, but you know, there's an order to how you do things and when you do that. But uh, ultimately, uh, we've been really happy with our new system and uh, look forward to seeing the enhancements and future growth of it. You know, I was I was skiing at Smuggler's Knots this weekend and they have RFID cards, which is kind of funny because it's I don't know if you've ever skied at Smugs, but it has this reputation of having these really old hall double chairlifts from the 60s. And it's just a huge mountain. And the guy I was skiing with works there. And, and, and I asked him, I was like, you know, I, I was kind of surprised to see Gates here because, you know, Smugs usually is a little slower. He said, yeah, but what we found is the Gates are so valuable, uh, not just for all the usual reasons of preventing fraud and everything, but in a resort this size, he said, if, if you lost someone, you can get a really good sense of where they are from the lift that they scanned onto last time. And, and you know, sometimes you find out they just scanned into the pool and they're, they're, they're back at their condo. So, right. so have you found those kind of advantages? Because you're dealing with big mountain skiing and I'd imagine people get lost. It, has, that, have you, has your patrol been able to use that as a tool to help narrow down where someone could be on the mountain? We haven't, we haven't used that, that specific example. No, not yet. I'm sure it will at some point, but we've not seen that yet. Um, our sort of biggest, you know, advantage that we've seen so far um, is just, well, quite frankly, you know, it's, it's helping us. Um, uh, I think it's, it's replacing some of the staff that we've traditionally had trouble getting to scan tickets, right? Those are always pinch points on the employee side for us. So it's helping us on a labor perspective, uh, ease of use, um, you know, the, the amount of failure that we see on these is really, really low. They always work. They're fast. Um, and we can control really easily, you know, whose, uh, you know, whose paths works more so than we could with our old system. So, but, I, but I, I know Stuart, without a doubt, we'll see those other advantages as we continue to grow and get, and get there because I, uh, I, I, well, I mean, that's what it's designed to do and it'll help us um, identify those, those areas, but so far so good. We really like it. All right. Let's wrap up here, Scott, with a discussion of passes. Tamarack joined the Indy Pass in May of 2020. Was that the right move and, and uh, why was it the right move? And how do you like that partnership so far? Uh, I love it. And I think it was and is still the right move. Um, so Doug Fish, who is one of the founders, I actually knew Doug from the Tamarack 1.0 days. He was one of our marketing consultants uh, and, and Doug was great. In fact, when, when he saw that I came on board, um, he'd already been talking to Wolf, our vice president of resort ops. And so Doug reached out to me. He's like, Hey, you should join Indy Pass. I'm like, great. What's Indy Pass? How much is it? And, uh, you know, are you going to be here anytime soon? But when he started explaining to me what their purpose, right, what they're trying to accomplish, I thought, uh, yeah, it's no brainer. Why wouldn't we? And so, um, we saw, and we're seeing again, huge numbers. Um, we, I personally, I, and our team, we like the yield that we get on the passes, um, we like what it offers and kind of what it represents. And again, it's sort of that fiercely independent side of this industry. Um, it's not to say that we don't all want to grow and get bigger and be more successful and profitable. But, you know, for where we are, I think it, it is it's the right right product at the right time. Um, and I really like the, the messaging behind it. So you you have no blackouts on the Indy Pass. Having just gone through the Christmas and New Year's week and the MLK holiday, do you think that was the right decision? I do. Um, it was, I think, absolutely the right decision. We had our, our, like I mentioned earlier, a record day for us on the 31st. It even surpassed our, our CCC. Um, but again, it was we had no issues from parking to lift lines, um, and we had a lot of indie indie riders here that day. So uh, I think that we learned, and, and we were deliberate in that this year because we wanted to understand what was really going to happen, and also not knowing how the season was going to go with this new variant. Um, 
um, you know, just not really sure where things were gonna gonna end up. Well, the one thing I was sure about is that we were not closing. We're not closing our mountain. Um, and, and we are in a little different situation on state land. We don't have to. Um, we have a different relationship with our landlord. But yeah, no, we were we were just we wanted to kind of do some A B testing. We tested A last season, we're testing B this season with Indy and we'll see how it goes. So far, we it was the right decision to not have blackouts. Any sense of what percentage of your day tickets are Indy Pass tickets? Uh, it's relatively small, but I'd say our biggest our biggest ones are going to be on the weekends, and you know, five percent or so range. It's not a huge piece of it, but it's definitely a lot more than we would be seeing without Indy. So, um, yeah, and that'll continue to grow, no question about it. So interesting that you still keep in place for your pass holders some reciprocal deals with Silver Mountain and Bogus Basin, one of which is an Indy Pass mountain and one of which is not. So pass holders at those mountains get two free lift tickets at Tamarack and vice versa. So curious why you're keeping this comp ticket model in place when you have this deal with Indy, which pays you for each visit. Well, we're just nice. We're nice people in Idaho. We just, we like each other. So I would say it's probably one of the legacy things that comes along with it and with with those two, especially with bogus. And and we did, there was a bit of a restructure on the bogus piece um, and it was more on their end. You know, they created some different, you know, past, uh, past tiers. And so there's, there's only a specific tier um, of passes that get to, to get the reciprocity. Um, and, you know, we, so we've seen, you know, not as many bogus uh, passes, but we've also seen a lot of bogus pass holders that have not been previous Tamarack pass holders, you know, make the, take the plunge and, and, and jump over. Um, but yeah, I think in general, it's just really more of an kind of the Idaho way. You know, we've got a great ski area association in Idaho. Um, it, I've often wondered and sort of, you know, vocalized, you know, why wouldn't we do an Idaho pass? And listen, that's a, that's a can of worms. Everybody's got an opinion. <laughs> that. Um, and I can tell you being, a not being a, a, a ski industry guy for my whole career, uh, I get to ask the dumb guy questions and, and be okay. And, I, and it's not like people think I'm dumb, but they, maybe right. they do, but I get to ask questions that probably has, have, has been asked for decades. Um, in this industry, and uh, I get to hear all sides of it. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, you know, we did. I did something. We did something that I think is really unique and, and novel, and it was sort of a little bit of a passion project for me. And that's uh, we created something called the Sky Pass. Um, and even before coming on board in this capacity, I had this idea and thought through it. And you know, I I saw these two kids one day walking through town, and they looked like me when I was about that age. You know, kind yeah. of dirty t-shirts, dirt over their face, cut off jeans. And I just sort of had this thought, I'm like, you know, what I have been able to afford it, a day ticket at Tamarack. And the answer was resounding, of course not. You know, what's wrong with you? You grew up in you know, North Carolina, right? It's not like you grew up. And so, well, why don't these kids have that opportunity? So that really led into this development, uh, this concept of the Sky Pass, which is student kids and youth pass. And uh, I brought that idea, you know, took it to you know, to the partners at the ownership level. And I said, here's here's the value proposition. Right. It's it's uh, we create lifetime customers and loyalty. And, and by the way, what an amazing opportunity for every K through 12 student in this county and in one district next to us to get a, a free year round pass until they graduate. I mean, imagine that. Imagine what that can do. And so. We uh, we put plan together and I had some help from my team internally and we launched it and man, it's been huge. It's been amazing. And, you know, just to have the parents that reach out to us to let us know or to see 
sky pass kids coming through to pick up their pass and looking at the numbers again we can tell exactly with our rfid gates you know the sky pass um, kids that we have and then it also opens up to you know when you're teenage and before you graduate uh, opportunities to recruit you know for uh, for you know to work here right maybe there's a career that you want to have in this industry and you didn't know that until you had a chance to come ski so we worked with our school district superintendent and it just uh, it's been great this first year we also partnered with some outside 501s um, to uh, to put together gear drives and so there's free gear um, through some local 501s that uh, you know people donate their equipment and then if you don't if you can't afford to rent the equipment right you can go get it for free for the day or for the season depending on what you're doing so i think this is a again another paradigm shift that that this industry should embrace because i mean everyone's raising ticket prices um and we're not we're we're doing the same thing but we have to kind of keep in mind that there are people that need to have access to this these amenities that sometimes can't and so we have a responsibility to, to make it as accessible to everyone, uh, including, you know, white, black, brown. I mean, this is this is a this is a universal across the board issue that that needs to be addressed. And so we're going to do our part here in Idaho, uh, here in Valley County. And uh, I'm just excited to see how it continues to, to grow from here. Yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous program, Scott. I, are you attaching any income restrictions to this or any any grade Nope. minimums nothing it is it, it, if you're k through 12 and you're in the school district here if you're homeschooled here it's for homeschoolers as well um there's no restrictions you can your parents can make you know a hundred million dollars a year or they can make <laughs> you know a hundred thousand dollars a year there's no restrictions you if you're enrolled in this district you get a free pass period and how many of those passes have you distributed so in our in our district, we've got 1,800 students, roughly. That's the number. So again, it's not big today, but uh, I think we've got about 800, almost 900. Um, so in the first year, we, we're seeing close to 50% adoption. And what's really cool, Stuart, is we look through all the Sky um, Sky Pass holders that are coming. We're seeing a lot of siblings skiing together. And, oh, cool. And uh, and I, I I don't know if that's how it's, it happens in the past, but just think about the ability to kind of be with your friends and your, you know, your brother or your sister to enjoy a day on the mountain. So, but yeah, so, you know, close to 50% adoption on this first year and we'll keep pushing it, um, you know, every year. And this program's never going away. This is going to be, uh, it's going to live in perpetuity. Absolutely love that, Scott. I want to ask you about one related initiative, one thing you did this year, um, and that'll let you go. The Discovery Chairlift made that totally free for everyone. Talk about that. Um, Sure. That that was an idea that Wolf, uh, our VP of uh, Resort Ops, he brought it to me last year and he goes, you know, here's an opportunity for parents and families that are just learning how to ski to come up, have access to a lift that's, you know, not terribly, um, you know, big, and, it, and but also not have to spend a couple hundred bucks to find out in an hour that your kid doesn't like it or to find mm -hmm. out in an hour that your kid loves it. Right. So we wanted to eliminate a barrier to entry and the disco chair or the uh, discovery chair is the perfect chair for that. Um, and I got to tell you, it, it was, it's a brilliant idea and we're seeing that happen a lot. And it's really kind of an easy way for families, right? Parents and younger kids to find out, you know, are we going to make an investment into this for our kids and for us? Let's go find out for free. And I think that made a lot of sense. And so we're seeing uh, a lot of usage on the lift this uh, this winter, and it's been great. It's really cool to see that. Love it. I love uh, I love watching Tamarack come back. I feel really good about this renaissance, Scott. I think 
you're doing all the right things up there. Very, very excited to see this expansion play out and cannot wait to get out there and ski it for myself. So I wish you the very best of luck with all of that. And I thank you very much for everything today and for for staying strong through our technical issues. We got it done. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you and your patience early on. I think we had like four or five takes, but we finally got it. (laughs) Thanks for for allowing me to come on your program and uh, look forward to uh, staying in touch. That's Scott Turlington, president of Tamarack Resort, Idaho. Scott, that was awesome. So much happening there at Tamarack, and I appreciate you breaking all that down for us in the midst of a very busy ski season. Thank you all very much for listening. I've got a lot of great episodes on the way. The Highlands of Harbor Springs, formerly known as Boyne Highlands in Michigan, will be in your inbox next, followed by a conversation with the owner of three Wisconsin ski areas, Nordic Mountain, Little Switzerland, and the Rock Snow Park. Then I've got a killer lineup coming. Conversations with the leaders of Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania, Beaver Mountain, Utah, Solitude, Utah, Beaver Creek, Colorado, Snow Ridge, New York, Big Sky, Montana, and Summit Esnoqualmie, Washington. To get those conversations the second they drop, go to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter. You can also follow along with The Storm on Twitter or Instagram at Stormski Journal. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.